Hello, and welcome back to the second episode of the Dead Poets Podcast. Thank you guys for the awesome feedback uh, regarding the first episode. Hopefully it's going to help me make some good changes for the next episodes to come, as I really appreciate that. For this episode, I have narrowed down a couple good poems and an excerpt that I really enjoyed from a book that I recently finished in the last couple months. Also, uh, apparently, this is a somewhat seasonal-themed episode. I didn't notice that until I had laid out the three pieces that I chose, and they all had something to do with the seasons. And I thought that was pretty cool because I didn't actually even plan it. I'm still trying to figure out a good structure for this show as of now. I got a couple good suggestions. I'm kind of piecing some stuff together. But for now, I'll just read you a poem. Then I'll read you the short excerpt that stood out to me, and then I will read you another poem. This first poem is by Thomas More. He was an Irish poet that lived from 1779 to 1852. He was born in Dublin, above a little grocery mart that his parents owned in the city. He actually had a short period of acting in some plays in some small theaters around Ireland, during which he really developed and honed his skills as a poet. He is generally considered to be Ireland's poet slash Ireland's bard. I guess you could say that he is to Ireland what Walt Whitman would be to America. So here's the poem that I selected by him. It's a rather famous poem of his, and it's called The Last Rose of Summer. Tis the last rose of summer left blooming alone. All her lovely companions are faded and gone. No flower for kindred, no rosebud is nigh, To reflect back her blushes, to give sigh for sigh. I'll not leave thee, thou lone one, to pine on the stem. Since the lovely are sleeping, go, sleep thou with them. Thus kindly I scatter thy leaves o'er the bed, Where thy mates of the garden lie scentless and dead. So soon may I follow when friendships decay, And from love's shining circle the gems drop away. When true hearts lie withered and fond ones are flown, Oh, who would inhabit this bleak world alone? During the Great Potato Famine, Thomas More's health declined rapidly and severely. He became very senile and confused, actually, and a few years later he died and was buried near his daughter, who passed away when she was 17, in St. Nicholas Churchyard near his house. The epitaph on his headstone reads, Dear harp of my country, in darkness I found thee, the cold chain of silence had hung o'er thee long, when proudly my own island harp I unbound thee, and gave all thy chords to light, freedom, and song. If you like that poem by Thomas More and you're interested in hearing some more, he wrote dozens of poems and verses and several pieces of prose that we could talk about here, so just shoot me over a suggestion if you liked hearing about it and I'll add it to the list. The next piece that I want to share is a short excerpt from A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway's memoir of his early life in the 1920s Paris. In this memoir, he vividly describes what it's like to be young and poor and a struggling writer. One thing in the epigraph of the book that really stuck out to me and I thought was interesting 
was that Hemingway actually said in a few letters and other writings, and I'm paraphrasing here, that all writing is fiction. He said, because your brain can't remember every single detail, that even when you're writing the truth, it's somewhat fiction because your brain fills in some of the details that you cannot remember. So he talks about his memoir. He says that it's fiction if you want it to be fiction, but that it's based in truth and he's writing everything that he can't remember. So I thought it was just very interesting for somebody to be basically writing a memoir and saying, you know, um, I'm not sure if this is all true. I think it's true, but I might be making some stuff up. And I thought that was pretty funny and pretty honest um, detail. I've never actually heard um, other authors say that about themselves, especially about a memoir. So in this short piece I pulled, it's out of the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six, you can really get a good sense of his writing style. He really writes in very um, direct language and gets right to the point quickly, but he still does a good job of painting a picture for you at the same time. So here's the piece. With the fishermen and the life on the river, the beautiful barges with their own life on board, the tugs with their smokestacks that folded back to pass under the bridges, pulling a tow of barges, the great elms on the stone banks of the river, the plane trees, and in some places, the poplars, I could never be lonely along the river. With so many trees in the city, you could see the spring coming in each day until a night of warm wind would bring it all in suddenly in one morning. Sometimes, the heavy cold rains would beat it back so that it would seem that it would never come and that you were losing out a season of your life. This was the only truly sad time in Paris because it was unnatural. You expected to be sad in the fall. Part of you died each year when the leaves fell from the trees and their branches were bare against the wind and the cold wintry light. But you knew there would always be the spring as you knew the river would flow again after it was frozen. When the cold rains kept on and killed the spring, it was as though a young person had died for no reason. In those days, though, the spring always came finally, but it was frightening that it had nearly failed. When spring came, even the fall spring, there were no problems except where to be the happiest. The only thing that could spoil a day was people. And if you could keep from making engagements, each day had no limits. People were always the limiters of happiness, except for the very few that were as good as spring itself. Honestly, I really love Hemingway's stuff, and I really hope we get to get into his life and some of his works in greater detail down the road. There's a lot to unpack with Hemingway. He was quite a guy. He had a lot of stories to tell. I guess we don't really know if they're fiction or truth. One thing about him that's pretty cool was he actually served in France in World War I, but he actually served with the American Red Cross. He was an ambulance driver. I thought that was pretty interesting when I read that about him. This last poem that I'll read you here quickly is a fall-themed poem, and it is by John Clare. Clare was born in 1793 into a very poor little village in England, Helpston, England, and he was born into a peasant family. So having nothing, he really sought to illuminate the little things in life. And in 1820, he published his first book, 
called Poems Descriptive of Rural Life and Scenery. Just like what one would say about the majority of the romantic poets, um, he too did not make very much money as a poet. He really only became extremely popular after he died in 1864. I really appreciate him as a poet because he embodied the goal and the burden that most poets of that romantic era really carried, which I feel like was to um, place immense value on the little things that most people would just kind of pass over. There are really only three short stanzas to this piece. The third one is my favorite. Try to notice how he describes the leaves in those final verses of that, that stanza. Here's the poem called Autumn. The thistledown's flying, though the winds are all still, on the green grass now lying, now mounting the hill. The spring from the fountain now boils like a pot, through stones past the counting it bubbles red hot. The ground parched and cracked is like overbaked bread. The green sward all wrecked is, bents dried up and dead. The fallow fields glitter like water indeed, and gossamers twitter, flung from weed unto weed. Hilltops like hot iron glitter bright in the sun, and the rivers we're eyeing burn to gold as they run. Burning hot is the ground, liquid gold is the air. Whoever looks round sees eternity there. That last stanza really is actually pretty cool. The trees he's wanting us to all see are red and orange and burning like hot iron, he says, and the leaves falling into the river and the creeks are yellow and orange, making the water look like it's flowing gold. It's funny, he, he tells us the floor is lava and the, the air is golden. I suppose this is what heaven looks like to him, and I guess it kind of looks like that to me too when I think about it sometimes. I know I said that this was a seasonal episode, but... Today is Halloween when this episode is coming out, so I think it's only fair that I throw in a little Halloween poem for you guys. This one's actually not by Poe, I know that's what you were thinking. This one is by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. A little backstory about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He was born in 1807 in Portland, Maine, back when I was still part of Massachusetts. His father was a very prominent lawyer and later on became a member of Congress. A couple of very famous poems that you may recognize the titles of from when you were in literature class would probably be Paul Revere's Ride or Hiawatha. Those two are discussed pretty frequently in literature classes, so they may be familiar to you. Longfellow published a collection of poems called The Courtship of Miles Standish and Other Poems, in 1858, and that is where this poem first appeared. This poem is called Haunted Houses. All houses, wherein men have lived and died, are haunted houses. Through the open doors, the harmless phantoms on their errands glide, with feet that make no sound upon the floors. We meet them at the doorway, on the stair, Along the passages they come and go, impalpable impressions on the air, a sense of something moving to and fro. There are more guests at the table than the hosts invited. The illuminated hall is thronged with quiet, 
inoffensive ghosts, as silent as the pictures on the wall. The stranger at my fireside cannot see the forms I see, nor hear the sounds I hear, but he perceives what is, while unto me all that has been visible and clear. We have no title deeds to house or lands, owners and occupants of earlier dates from graves forgotten stretch their dusty hands and hold in mortmain still their old estates. The spirit world around this world of sense floats like an atmosphere and everywhere wafts through these earthly mists and vapor dense a vital breath of more ethereal air. Our little lives are kept in equipoise by opposite attractions and desires, the struggle of the instinct that enjoys and the more noble instinct that aspires. These perturbations, this perpetual jar of earthly wants and aspirations high come from the influence of an unseen star and undiscovered planet in the sky. And as the moon from some dark gate of cloud throws o'er the sea a floating bridge of light, across those trembling planks our fancies crowd into the realm of mystery and night. So from the world of spirits there descends a bridge of light, connecting it with this, or whose unsteady floor that sways and bends wander our thoughts above the dark abyss. And just like that, we wrapped up the second episode of the Dead Poets Podcast. If you enjoyed it, save me to your library so you don't miss next week's episode. Also, if you do know anybody who may be interested in the podcast, go ahead and send it to them. I'd really love for the Dead Poets family to grow. I know the first episode, actually, a few people from Ireland and a couple of people from Australia and India also tuned in for it. So that was pretty exciting. Thanks for listening. Until next time, carpe diem and make your lives extraordinary.